Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind you that Talking Metal will be at the KISS Expo in Atlanta in about two weeks. Please come say hello to us there. Again, Talking Metal will be at the KISS Expo in Atlanta on January 19th and 20th. The return of Vinnie Vincent. I can't wait. I mean, from the time I'm recording this, we are literally just 16 days away. It is going to be absolutely amazing. Mark Striegel, that's me. Emily Striegel. My, my good friend Ian McCurdy, who's a big part of this episode today, and possibly John Ostrowski, a.k.a. Ostronomy, for all you old-school Talking Metal fans and current Ace Fraley fans, you know, you know him. Uh, hopefully all four of us will be there. Definitely Ian and myself and uh, Emily will, will, are for sure. We're definitely going to be there. Hopefully John, too. But please come say hello to Talking Metal at the Atlanta Kiss Expo, January 19th and 20th. See you there, guys. Hey, this is Eric Sayer from Kiss, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Hi, I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. On this episode, we're going to talk some rock, some metal, and anything else we feel like. We're also going to jam some tunes, have a drink, and share some honest opinions. Thanks for listening to the Talking Metal Podcast. Let's get things started. Here's an old classic that sounds just as good today as it did when we were kids.
Hey guys, welcome back to Mark Striegel and Talking Metal. How are you? I hope everyone is enjoying the new year, 2018. And uh, yeah, we're going to get into an epic interview here with Eric Singer of KISS. And he's going to tell us really a lot about his career at Badlands, Alice Cooper, of course, KISS, Montrose. We're, we're hitting a lot of topics here. It's a, it's a really great listen. Eric was uh, connected with us through a computer, so there are some kind of weird audio things that happen occasionally. Uh, it shouldn't affect the, the your overall enjoyment of the interview, but I guess I'd call them like uh, partial dropouts, because he never really drops out 100%. Um, yeah, so just slight disclaimer on that. But he says some great stuff, so stay tuned for this interview, epic, over an hour long, with Eric of KISS. And before we do that, I want to say thanks to Ian McCurdy. He conducts this interview with me, and he was, I guess, in Georgia. I was in Indiana at the time of the interview on a a Christmas break, and Eric is in, I'm guessing, Los Angeles. So, uh, yeah, so connecting connecting the country through this interview. But uh, Ian, Ian McCurdy is a friend of Eric's, and he set this up, and... We also have uh, an amazing giveaway on today's show, okay? So this is just just incredible, and it's all thanks to Ian. This episode is thanks to Ian. As was the, you know, two episodes ago, we had Roman, Bill O'Coin's partner, and Ian actually booked Roman on Talking Metal. Ian has booked tons of guests on Talking Metal throughout the last, like, year and a half, and I really appreciate all the work he does behind the scenes, and I never give him enough credit on the actual podcast. So thank you, Ian. And uh, wow, thanks for hooking up this interview with Eric today. I tell you what, we're going to take a, just a little commercial break here. It's, it's very short, 15 seconds. Check out this commercial, and the commercial is important. It's important you listen to the commercial because it has, it has something to do with our, with our giveaway on the podcast today. And you could win an amazing prize. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Inspired by Jimmy Johnson, Seiko Katura Radio Sync Solar Chronograph, precisely synced to frequencies that deliver the most accurate timekeeping in the world. My style, my Seiko. Seiko Katura. All right, guys. So we're going to be giving away a watch. Eric Singer is a big collector of watches. And in, in honor of Eric, we are going to give away. A, drum roll please, Seiko 5 automatic watch. Again, this is a Seiko 5 automatic watch. Uh, There's a picture of it in today's show notes if you want to check it out. It could be yours. And let me see, what can I tell you about this? Seiko 5 stainless steel automatic watch, which features a blue dial with a 38 mm, what's that, millimeter, a 38 millimeter case, size and exhibition case back to reveal the classic 21 jewel automatic movement. So if you're a watch guy, you probably know what all that means. I'm not a watch guy, so I like watches. I'd like to win this watch. But one of you guys who are listening to this show is going to win it. So I'm going to give you all the details in just a second. Of course, we started off today's episode with some classic Badlands with Eric on drums. But right now, let's get into some 
more modern stuff. Uh, you know, not super recent, but this is off the Sonic Boom record. This is honestly off the Sonic Boom record and the the Monster record. Out of all those songs, this is top three for me. This is All for the Glory by Kiss. For the Glory, a song that was written by Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons and of course features Eric Singer on drums and lead vocals. That is off the Sonic Boom record back from 2009. Go buy that and support Kiss, support Eric Singer. All right. Yeah. All right. So without further ado, let's get into this contest. Here's how you win the watch. You need to go to the Talking Metal Twitter account or to my personal Facebook page or the Talking Metal Facebook page. And you need to share. You need to share the info about this episode. If you scroll through my Facebook page or the Talking Metal Facebook page, you will see this episode listed and... Just share it to win. We will randomly pick one person who shares it on Facebook or retweets it on Twitter. So if you're not a Facebook guy, you can go to Twitter and retweet the the tweet by me. uh, At Talking Metal is the Twitter account where we uh, are hyping this episode. So if you retweet this episode on Twitter or you share it on Facebook... And let's say, yeah, give it a like on Facebook, too. If you, if you do those things, 
You don't have to do both of them. You can do Facebook or Twitter. It doesn't have to be both. If you do one of those things, you win the watch, and it'll be sent to you. Okay? So that's that. Yeah. Good luck, and we'll hopefully announce the winner on an upcoming episode. All righty. So let's get into the interview with Eric. A little sound sample of Montrose... And then we will hear from Eric Singer. This is off the 10 by 10 record, Ronnie Montrose. And the song is... This song is Head on Straight. Classic. Just, just a classic 70s vibe about this. And Eric's on the drums. Off the 10 by 10 record the final recordings of ronnie montrose and after we hear this song we'll get right into ian mccurdy and mark striegel's interview with eric singer if you don't like a situation a life keeps getting you down it's gonna take the termination Take it to the higher ground It don't matter to me If it don't matter to you What you gonna do You better get it together You better not be late This ain't gonna Yeah. 
Hey, this is Mark Striegel of the Talking Metal Podcast, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Ian McCurdy, and we have on the line the drummer of KISS, Eric Singer. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing great. Good. Are you guys all are you guys all uh stuffed up food wise from the holidays, from Christmas going into New Year's here? Yeah, I think I put on like I'm not even kidding, like ten pounds. I'm at my mother in law's and it's <laughs> just like if you don't eat, it's you know, she gets offended. So it's uh, yeah, you you have to eat. And it's good food, so yeah, it's definitely putting on oh, the pounds. It's crazy. Uh I know, it's crazy. It's like I try to always monitor and be good about it, but man, it was like I, I, on Christmas Eve, I went to some friends' dinner, and I just—I uh, I don't think I got that stuffed feeling in a long time. Where you know how when you just feel so overly bloated, stuffed to the point where you almost feel like sick and you right. don't want to move. Yeah, it's terrible. I took it easy this week preparing for because uh, my friends are Italian. They always do all these big dinners for New Year's and New Year's Eve and, and day and Christmas Eve and day. So. This family and friends of mine, they love to do, they love to entertain. They do four big sit-down dinners during the holidays. So number, nice. number three is tomorrow night, and uh, so I'm trying to prepare. <laughs> yeah, nice. So, hey, Eric, we wanted to get, you know, an update on KISS from you, but before we do that, we wanted to dive a little into your history. And I remember first learning about you back when I was a, a teenager, when you basically replaced Bill Ward in the revamped version of Black Sabbath, and you ended up working on the Seventh Star record with Tony Iommi and Glenn Hughes. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about, how you ended up as a member of Black Sabbath? Um, yeah, well, it, I mean, it seems like, it actually doesn't seem that long ago, but it really was over 30 years ago. Um, I was playing with Lita Ford at the time, and she was engaged to Tony Iommi, and um, Tony had I started just doing demos with him. And originally he was doing some demos. He was producing Lita's demos. Uh, she was doing records, so she was getting ready to work on the record. And so Tony originally was producing those demos. And then he had seen me play them, so then he asked me to play on his stuff. And uh, she had Lita's bass player, who was named Gordon Copley. So Lee, Gordon and myself were playing on the demos. And then as Tony got more serious, he decided, I think, that he really wanted to work on a record. And he had the idea of doing a kind of uh, similar record like I did with Ronnie Montrose recently. There was a Montrose record that came out about a month ago called 10 by 10, where it was 10 songs with 10 different singers. Um, anyways, uh, Tony's idea was to have a bunch of different singers. And at that time, I remember he was talking about having um, Coverdale and Robert Plant and Glenn Hughes and all these different singers sing you know, one or two songs each or something like that. And, um, but as we got along, um, as we moved along, he had, when they had Glenn come in to sing, they liked Glenn's voice so much. and thought it was so great. They just said, let's just have Glenn sing on the whole thing. And that's how that came to be. But originally it was supposed to be just a solo album. And, uh, while we were recording the record, um, in fact, stuff on YouTube somewhere, there's a version of like the thrill is gone with, Lita singing and then Tony does the solo or one of the solos on it. It's on YouTube somewhere. I think if okay. you look it up, probably can find it. It's pretty obscure, but there was a bunch of other songs because at the time I think she was going to call her record "The Bride or Black" was going to be the name of the album, and because she was engaged and you know to Tony Iommi and all that, so there was the kind of 
little uh, connection to the title. And she actually had a song called that as well, uh, called The Bride Wore, Wore Black. But anyways, um, Lita wanted to get working on her material. So she took Gordon, her bass player, back to start working on writing with her. And so we brought Dave Spitz in. And he ended up playing on the record. And uh, so we did the record. And then they ended up, Tony wanted to tour. And we had to ask us to be in the band. And, uh, and the rest is history. But then Glenn, uh, you know, Glenn had some, had personal and vocal issues. You know, had just had issues going on at that time. Right. And Glenn only for like six shows. And then we got Rick Allen, who ended up in Badlands. We ended up in Badlands together with Jakey e. Lee. But, um. Ray Gillen was found by, uh, actually, Dave Spitz had seen him playing in a club band, which goes to show you that people actually do get discovered just by playing in a band locally and somebody sees them and, you know, poaches them out of the situation. That's exactly what happened with Ray. Uh, somebody had seen him playing in a club band with Bobby Ron. He had a band called Rondinelli with Bobby Rondinelli, the drummer, who also okay. played in Sabbath. So, anyways, he saw, uh, Dave Spitz had seen him and, he, I think he had a girlfriend that took vocal lessons from the same vocal teacher and they got his number and he came out and sang with us at a sound check and that was it. We, the rest was history. We said, this guy's the guy. So, so Glenn, so Glenn was already out and you were looking for a second singer? No, no, Glenn, no, Glenn was not. We were looking for a singer when I was already singing because it was very obvious, very obvious right from the rehearsal time frame that Glenn was not up to the task. Um, I don't think he was prepared to just be the lead singer in a band. Glenn always plays bass and always played bass and, and sang. Whether he's second lead singer or main singer, he's always done that. And um, he didn't even realize that he wasn't going to be playing bass because he got there and here's Dave Spitz, you know, playing bass. And he's like, oh, I didn't even know I wasn't going to play bass. And, you know, it was just so, <laughs> looking back, it was kind of funny because it's like he didn't even seemed like he was prepared for the whole situation. He's a great singer, and he's a really nice guy. It's just, it's just bad timing on his part. But that was like, I always tell everybody, that was one of my really kind of going to to a school, if you will, uh, the ropes about being in the music business um, crash course, you know, because we had Don Arden, Sharon Osborne, Ozzy's wife's father. He was the manager. Uh, so I had a real crash course into like dealing with the music business on many levels, just all the shenanigans that goes on um, behind the scenes. And I have to say it was a quite a learning curve uh, in those formative years. But you know, they're they're, they're now at the time it was kind of uh, frustrating and confusing. But looking back, it's kind of funny. I can laugh at it all because it's there's some crazy stuff that 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 happened. And I was just like, wow, you can't believe it, but it's amazing what, uh, what goes on, you know? Yeah. And especially when you, you, you add drugs and alcohol to the situation that really fuels it to be even more chaotic. Right. Right on. No. So Ray, Ray is in, in Sabbath. You guys are doing shows with him and you, it's from the way the history books are written. You actually record the eternal, Idol album with Ray, but then at some point he's out, and Tony Martin comes in and re-records all his parts. Uh, is well, that okay? Well, yeah, well what, that, that's basically the short version. But I'll get, I'll try to give it a more uh, accurate but still simplified version. We after we did 
after we got Ray going as a singer, then the band kind of really did become more cohesive sounding, and the band sounded really good. Um, once we once we got our sea legs, as the old saying goes, you know, and and got tight, and Ray got comfortable and knew the lyrics and knew what he was singing. Um, we did some shows um, over in uh, England, did a tour of England, and the band was started really good. So we ended up. Tony wanted to just go right in and do a new record and start, you know, basically start fresh with it with this lineup. And we were in Birmingham for a few months doing a bunch of demos, and then we it, he switched managers. And then it was decided that we were going to record at Air Studios Montserrat, which is the studio owned by, well, it's not there anymore, but it was owned by George Martin. But it was a famous studio in the West Indies. Very small, remote island, but really beautiful location and a really cool studio. Just it was a, I was there for six weeks. It was a great experience. And um, so we went there and did, worked on the record. And during that time, we switched bass players to Bob Daisley. So then that looked like it was going to be the new lineup. Um, so we did all the tracks. And then after we were done with the basic tracks, they went to London to, to work. And I went back to LA. And it just kind of gone. There was a lot of stuff going on. So I, I Bob Daisy was going to be the Bob had been a few years. So Bob called me up one day and said, I'm just going to, I didn't work for the and then he called me up and said, hey, Gary Moore needs a drummer. I told him about you. Do you want to audition? So I flew over to London. So I ended up quitting the Sabbath gig to go play with Gary Moore with Bob Daisley. And so now they were down to just Tony and Ray Gillen. And then Ray, while he was in London working on the record, he had met up with John Sykes and Cozy Powell. And Sykes was starting that band, Blue Murder. So Ray quit. Right. to go play with John Sykes, which okay. was the very original version of Blue Murder was with Cozy Powell on drums and with Ray Gillen singing in the beginning. And and Tony, um, uh, what's his name? Tony Franklin on bass. But then uh, I guess the label, Geffen and Sykes decided that John wanted to sing instead. So Cozy Powell quit because of that because he thought they wouldn't find a better singer from what I was told. So Cozy quit. And they got Carmine a piece, and it ended up as a trio, the one that the version of Black Bluebird that we all know. But for a, for a short, yeah, maybe about maybe I think for maybe about a half a year, Ray was working in that version of the band. So that's wow. when they brought Tony Mark, had him just re-sing everything. And then later on, when I was on tour with Gary Moore, Jakey e. Lee came to one of our shows, and I he by that point he was already out of Ozzy, and uh, you know I knew he was going to put a new band together, and I and I told him about Ray at that time because people always tell the story that oh ray gillen's mother called up jake and left a message and that's how <laughs> that's how ray hooked up jake. Well, that's true but ray's mother called but ray at ray flew out to la and was staying at my apartment because with the intention of trying to get together and jam with jake lee but i actually i'm the one that actually told jake about ray gillen when he came to one of our gary moore shows in, uh, in Southern California and said, Hey, I heard you're going to put a band together. We should get together and jam. And I know this really great singer. And eventually a few months later, Ray came out and we did finally jam with him. And, and I remember the first time we jammed together, it was actually Juan Crozier from rat. His brother played bass. The first time we ever got together and jammed. Wow. Um, he's also a bass player. 
as well. Uh, I forget his name, his first name, but I know it was Juan's brother. I think he's Juan's older brother. But Jake knew him from the San Diego area because Rat, Jake had been in Rat at one point earlier and Juan mm-hmm. Martini replaced him. There's a lot of lineage there between all these people. You know, music is very incestuous, as we all know. Right. And and there's a lot of nepotism. People hire their friends always, you know. I guess that's true. It all walks alike when you think about it. So how did so, Greg How did Greg end up in Badlands to finish the four to do the album? Um, Jake brought him in. Okay. Jake, Jake knew him from, I guess he had auditioned for Ozzy, was the story I was told. And Jake and him became friends. So Jake, uh, we auditioned a bunch of different people, but Jake wanted him in the band. So, um, you know, it was one of those things, like I said, people hire their friends. And uh, we all do that, you know. So if you are if you have a job and you need somebody, first thing you do is call one of your friends if they're looking for a job and go, hey, you know. Or, I mean, I've done that many times myself. Been in bands and you need somebody. I remember in Kiss, we need, when we needed a keyboard player and Gene asked me, do you know anybody? And I called up Derek Sherinian because we had just played together in Alice Cooper. And I said, hey, Derek, you want to do this gig? And he came down, and that was it. You know, so we all hire our friends. Can you tell us about the recording process of the first Badlands album? We went into the record plant in Los Angeles to do a bunch of demos. And, you know, we, we did some of those demos, but then I think the label, the, we, we were already signed, we had just gotten signed, and then, so then we went in to go and record. Then we, you know, we wrote some more material. We, then we actually went to do the record for real at the end of '88, a few months later at uh, at One on One, which is in North Hollywood. Here, it's pretty close to my house, actually. Um, to the NoHo Arts District, that's a really great studio. We did the basic tracks mm-hmm. there. But then after we did those tracks, the label wanted they they wanted to hear a few other songs. They said we want to at least hear a couple of songs that we think could be you know MTV slash radio airplay because everybody was doing videos as you know that was the big thing. So right. We wanted to make sure that we had some songs that they felt would be able to be promoted in that way. And the band was kind of uh, at a crossroads because some of the people in the band open to saying, yeah, okay, fine. We got to do what we got to do to, you know, you got to work with a label when people, my, my theory, or I should say my perspective or point of view is if somebody gives you money to make a record, they're not giving you money, unless you're a jazz musician, they're not giving you money to just go and do whatever you want. Um, but in the record business of rock and roll, and especially in that eighties time, people want something to produce results, mean, meaning sales. They don't just give you a bunch of money to make whatever you want and hope it sells and go, yeah, go ahead. Here's a, you know, here's a quarter million dollars. So we had, there were some differences of opinion within the band of that point of view, I should say. And it doesn't mean that one or the other is necessarily wrong. It just means that you're not on the same wavelength. And I think there was a bit of problems there. Uh, eventually it got worked out and we ended up going, uh, Ray and Jake went to New York to work on more songs and, uh, so I flew to New York and did some more tracks. That's why, if you notice on the album, for those that are familiar, on the actual vinyl, or it, maybe it even said it on the cassette, I don't remember, or the CD, but it would say East Side, West Side, because we right. did ha- half the songs recorded in New York and half the songs were recorded in California. So there's your East-West thing. And that was the reason for that, for those that didn't know, that little piece of 
senseless trivia. Um, so eventually we did that and the record came out and, you know, we had, you know, we, there was a good buzz, a very good buzz about the band. I mean, it's a shame that the band didn't do better in the long run um, because the band had definitely, it had everything in place to be potentially successful. It's just that the band self-imploded, unfortunately, at least in my opinion. So now with that band, did you guys, to me, that band always felt like you were a little ahead of the curve. I mean, there was still like, I guess what we'd call, you know, hair metal at this point going on in 1989. And yet it was before the grunge movement came in, but Badlands always felt like this, this band to me that was kind of bridging the gap between the 80s and the 90s because you guys had more of a street attitude and sound is that something you were kind of conscious of back in the day or is was that just something that happened i think that was um i think partly because the band kind of started first jamming in late 87 when we first started putting the whole thing together and then by by the beginning of 88 that's when we had the final lineup you know with the four people so we spent that you know first i don't know eight or nine months of 88 get put you know just figured out what we were doing some of the earlier was on again on youtube there's some demos of the original early badland songs and i think there's about six songs that never appeared on any badlands albums um some rough demos that are on YouTube. If you, somebody searches that out, you can find it. Um, and some of those songs were really cool. They were, I liked them because it was more, it was heavier. It was more of a right. black Sabbath Aussie style, but um, which is what I liked because that's what kind of what was going on at the time. And, but we all really liked seventies. It's, you know, sixties into early, especially seventies, early seventies, type hard rock blues based stuff, you know, Humble Pie and Grand Funk Railroad and, uh, you know, of course, Zeppelin, Deep Purple and that kind of stuff. We liked all that, all that music that we were influenced by. So that's, I think what you heard stylistically was all those influences. And we used to play a lot of cover songs live from other bands. Um, you know, I remember we used to play a Grand Funk song. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the song. We used to do, uh, you know, cover songs. We used to do uh, and Hendrix and stuff like that. We used to always throw one or two cover songs in when right. we play live. You know, to show, like, you know, we were wearing our, our influences on our sleeves, as the saying goes. But so that we were, you know, that we just decided, like, you know, this is what we want to do. We want to play. That's why we weren't dressing all flashy and glammy and kind of more, I would say, quite jeans and a T-shirt, but more have definitely have been influenced by that Led Zeppelin Humble Pie style look and sound. And right. uh, that was, I would say it happened organically. But it was also a, a concerted effort. I would say in some parts of, cause we just decided, Hey, we're just going to play that kind of music that we want to play. But um, like I said, the differences were the big differences is that some of us, um, wanted to still be mindful of the fact that we had a label and people that had, you know, invested in us and expected also a certain amount of, uh, uh, cooperation, if you will, of trying to be, you know, having some bit of commerciality. And I think that was always a struggle because from what I understand, after I was out of the band, which I was out after the first album that the, uh, 
you know, that those, those struggles and differences of opinion continued on, um, meaning Ray himself, because I think Ray always uh, wanted to, the band to be able to be commercially viable. You know, because bottom line, you know, pop, people sometimes say, well, I don't like pop music. All, all pop means is, is popular. Pop just stands for popular. And, and the bottom line is, if you're popular, that means a lot of people like you, and it means people buy your records and want to hear you on the radio and all that stuff. So to be successful and to keep it all going, you, you have to have a certain amount of popularity. And um, unless you want to be just a starting artist and play jazz, that, that's cool. And I, I would totally respect those type of musicians. If that's what you want to do, I think it's cool. Then, go, But you have to also mind, Yeah, I think you can't have it both. Right on. Artistic and just be like a jazz-minded guy and say, I'm just going to play the music I want and I don't care what anyone thinks. I think that I totally respect people that feel that way. But you can't expect people to give you hundreds of thousands of dollars and support you on tours to just go and do whatever you want. It's not selling. Not producing, then you have to be willing to compromise. I, I believe you have to compromise if you expect people to invest in you and give you a bunch of money. Experience has proven me right. Right on, right on. You know, around this time, I guess it's a little, a little later. Uh, 1989, you end up doing the Paul Stanley solo tour, which I saw at City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey, and that really seemed like the first time to me that Paul in a number of years, started to embrace the, the 70s era Kiss songs. Because, you know, when I saw them on Animalized and the Crazy Nights tour, there weren't, there weren't a lot of uh, old Kiss songs in the set. But when he played that tour, he was really, you know, come on and love me and, and going back to these songs that we hadn't heard in a number of years. Is that how you remember it? Do you remember him kind of embracing his past a little bit more on that tour for the first time in a while? Well, I can't. I can't comment completely on that because I wasn't coming, I wasn't looking at or analyzing any of that stuff from a Kiss fan perspective. And I believe me, I know how Kiss fans can be. They micro analyze every aspect of what that band does, pretty much. And everybody, it's amazing how some people really think they know what the band is doing and why. Like they really think they have the inside track or they have the perspective, um, which is pretty. Pretty, actually, pretty funny and entertaining at times, to be honest with you. Um, but I don't think uh, I can't tell you if Paul had that. I think the main premise of him doing it was like, this is me playing solo, so I'm doing all the material that I wrote or co-wrote, and I want it to be a, a little different sounding. In other words, why go out and play Kiss songs to sound just like Kiss plays them exactly the same? In other words, he didn't tell us, hey, I want you to go. Here's the live tapes of Kiss. I want you to play it like this. Because, uh, you know, these, you got to play it so it sounds like Kiss. He, I think, on purpose, that's why I kind of want to look crazy at times. Hey, Eric, I want to ask you about the, the Bill Ward record that you worked on with, with Ozzy Osbourne was on that record. Ward won along the way. Kind of has become a cult classic. And, you know, you went from playing with Tony and Black Sabbath, and then suddenly the, the you know iconic drummer of Black Sabbath is having you play on his solo record. How did that all come about? Bill came to, I'm not sure if he was friends with Bob Daisley. I think that's what it was. We were playing with Gary Moore, and we were playing some shows in Southern California. So that would have been like the fall of 87. And um, 
Bill came to one of our shows with some friends of his. And I, I think Bob, I think he had already asked Bob to play on his record is what happened because Bob had played with, cause Zach Wilde was on it also. And Zach and Bob had done, um, I remember, did Bob know Zach yet? Because, yeah, I think I think Zach just joined the band around the end of 87 because Bob went and played on, on No Rest for the Wicked. Right. I remember after the Gary tour ended, Bob stayed in L.A. and then he started working with Ozzy on that record and recorded it because um, he stayed at, Bob would stay at my house a lot of times. And uh, so Bill, um, asked, Bill came to one of the, the Gary Moore shows and he asked Bob, I think, to play on his record. And then after Bob, um, excuse me, Bill saw me playing. With, Bill knew I was a big Sabbath fan. I mean, that's, the funny thing is, I have to say, uh, not to change the subject, but a lot of the bands I played with, I was a big fan of growing up. Like, or they were, were in my formative years. I was very influenced by Sabbath and Kiss, you know, and those kind of bands. Uh, Brian, you know, Queen playing with Brian May, all these people I got to work with. I was a huge fan of all these bands. So, you know, Bill's like one of the nicest guys. He's a super like gracious, mellow guy. Um, and so, you know, Bill, it was kind of surreal. I, I'll admit Bill asked me to play on his record, but I think um, Bill had this one chaotic song that he wanted me. It was the opening track actually on the record. And it was like a double bass song. And, you know, at the time I was playing a lot of double bass. So I think that's why Bill wanted me. I think Bill's like, Bill has like a very creative mind and he's one of these people when he has a point of view, he sees the the imagery in his mind's eye of how he wants something to sound. And so he starts thinking, okay, I want that guy to play on it, and I'm going to do this and that and that on the song to make it get to the eventual result that I hear in my head. And um, so Bill had me do that track, and then he had me do some overdubs on another song. I think it was called Pink Clouds. Um, right. with just some Tom Tom. I played Tom Toms with mallets. I'm, not, I'm trying to remember if it was my idea to do it or I, I don't, I think I was there and Bob Bill goes, why don't you just go ahead and play on it? Um, so it, it was like really cool experience working with him in the studio because he's a really creative guy. Um, um, I mean, I'm a huge Sabbath fan. So mind you, I'm going to be a little bit biased. Um, I always thought all those guys were really, really creative and very talented, uniquely, you know, create, they created that unique sound. Um, between Geezer, Bill, Tony, and Ozzy. And each one of them deserves the same fair amount of credit. I know Tony wrote, you know, mostly most of the riffs, and I know Geezer wrote the lyrics, but Ozzy comes up with the melodies. You know, people sometimes want to try to take away from what Ozzy does. And I think that that's really, people aren't quite, I don't think they're quite accurate with their knowledge of what Ozzy does bring to the table. They think because Ozzy didn't maybe write the riff, or it doesn't write all the lyrics, you know, or, you know, I know Bob Dayton threw all those lyrics sometimes, the records he was on, but Ozzy comes up with those melodies. Those are Ozzy's melodies. He's, and his melodies are great. And they're, they're almost like they have a pop sensibility. You can really hear that he was greatly influenced by the Beatles when you listen to Ozzy's melodies because they're so melodic and uh, he has such a pop sensibility in this heavy music. I think Ozzy's much... Uh, underrated uh, when it comes to that creativity that he brings to the songs. And I'm not trying to be an Ozzy Homer. I just right. think that people want to discount the fact that just because he didn't write all the lyrics or the, or the, or the riffs that somehow he didn't do anything. It's like, you know, songs is, is 
a big part of the songs, obviously, is the lyric is the is the lyrics and melody, or uh, as well as the riff. But without that melody, Ozzy writes all those melodies. Don't doubt about it. It's very talented. Because I know whenever Randy Rhodes was playing with Ozzy, I know for a fact that Ozzy would hum a, a bar to him, and then Randy would play it. Yeah. Well, Bob told me that. Bob told me that. Um, well, I don't know about that, but Bob told me that when uh, you know Ozzy sometimes would say, um, he told me like, for example, Ultimate Sin. Now Jake didn't play on Ultimate Sin. I'm sorry, Bob did not play bass on Ultimate Sin, but he wrote the lyrics for all the songs except for Shot in the Dark, which Phil Susan wrote. But Bob told me that Ozzy would set, they'd send him tapes and he'd sit out in his garden at home and listen to the tapes and then write lyrics. And sometimes Ozzy would say, I want to, I have a title, you know, thank God for the bomb. And he said, that was Ozzy's title. Ozzy said, I want to write, write a song about thank God for the bomb. So Bob wrote the lyrics, but it was Ozzy's concept and his title of the song. So the point is, you can't say that like everyone automatically wants to think that he didn't, you know, contribute. It's like, well, even if it doesn't matter if he didn't write, even if he didn't write any lyrics on certain songs, he still came up with all those melodies. That is clearly, you ask anybody that worked with him, they'll tell you Ozzy came up with those melodies. So, um, but the point I was getting back to was Bill Ward. Bill was also a very creative guy. Um, I always thought that Bill had a very much of a Pink Floyd type influence to his kind of solo material. I always thought that that solo he did was a combination like a kind of like a Black Sabbath uh, meets Pink Floyd style of music. You know, after, I guess it was after the Bill Ward record, I mean, there's just so much stuff going on in your life around this time period, but you end up in Kiss replacing Eric Carr uh, for the Revenge well, record. Well, I played, I played with that, but I did Alice Cooper for a couple of years before that. Okay. So, forgetting that, I joined Alice, I, after I was in Badlands, um, I got actually got uh, basically fired. So, um, and right after that, I, I remember I got fired in the beginning of, of, of 80, I'm sorry, of 1990. And what first thing I did is I just started calling everybody I knew in the business to try to figure the best thing to do is just get, you know, pick up and run. And, uh, I, I remember I called a bunch of people just seeing if anybody knew about any gigs. And I called ironically, Doug Goldstein, who was the man, well, he became the manager of Guns N' Roses, Roses yeah. but Doug was working for their management at the time. And he told me, Alice, they were on tour. Uh, he was out road managing Great White, and they were opening for Alice Cooper. And he said, hey, I'm on tour with Alice right now, and he needs a drummer. Um, I'll tell him about you. And so Doug's the reason why how I ended up uh, you know, in Alice's band. He got me the audition. He basically told, the, told me about the gig and got me an audition. Oh, awesome. I love Doug. He's actually a friend of mine. He's a great guy. Great guy. Yeah, Doug. Well, Doug was just, here's goes to show you, like I said, when people hire their friends and always re- recommend and refer each other, uh, Doug was the security guard on the Black Sabbath tour for us in 86. So that's how I met Doug. He was doing security at the time. And um, so Doug's one of those guys that I saw go from a security guard working for management to becoming a manager of like a huge band in a very short time. Um, but Doug was always cool. I always got along really good with Doug and I, you know, uh, I never worked with him after that Sabbath time, but I always, you know, I've run cross paths with him here and there, uh, over the years, but uh, he, uh, I know he was good friends with Alice. That's how he, uh, 
you know, he basically was instrumental in getting me at least the opportunity. Right on. Cool. And how, how well did you know Eric Carr before joining KISS? Were you, uh, were you friendly I, with him? I did did you know him? him? You did not know him. I did not know Eric at all. I had never, only other than when I met Eric on Paul Stanley's solo tour, he came to the one gig when we played the, uh, the Ritz. And then I remember on the Hot in the Shade tour when they played Long Beach Arena, I went to that show. Right. And uh, other than that, never, and it was only like, it was always very like, hi, how you doing? Nice to meet you, that kind of thing. I didn't know Eric otherwise. Right on. And you did some playing with Brian May for a while too. Can you talk a little bit about how you ended up? I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Tony Iommi, Kiss, Alice Cooper, Queen, Brian May from Queen. How did you end up playing with Brian? Um, well, you know, I, it's funny because I had met Brian. Actually, the first time I met Brian was back in the 80s when we were working on the Black Sabbath stuff with Tony. I went to. I remember going to dinner with him a couple times right across the street from Cherokee Studios on Fairfax Boulevard. And Brian was with his whole family at that time. He was married to his first wife. And his kids were all real small. And I remember we went to dinner because he was good friends with Tony, and he still is. Um, they've been really good friends for, uh, you know, probably 40 years. So um, I was actually, the way I heard about the Gary Moore thing, I'm sorry, the Brian May thing, I was over in Europe appearing at these Kiss fan expos. And one of the fans told me, oh, I heard Brian May said he needs a drummer. I got hold of uh, Brian May's manager. I called up this woman and she said, oh, uh, is your number, you know, so she read my number off. I'm like, yeah, how'd you get my number? She said, Tony Iommi gave your number to Brian and recommended you. So ironically, wow. Tony uh, had referred me to Brian. I guess she said, oh, he gave, he gave Brian your number and somebody else's number. She said, another drummer. And um, so... And I, so she said, okay, well, Brian's out doing press promo right now, but he's going to do it. He's going to audition people and we'll have you come over and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, then in the interim, Alice Cooper camp called me up and asked me to come back and fill in because Jimmy DeGrasso, who was playing drums with Alice, was going to go play with Megadeth. And they said, I think something happened to Nick Menza's knee or something at the time, if I remember. Okay. So Jimmy went to go play. He was going to go and fill in, which he ended up joining the band, but he ended up replacing Nick. But he was originally going out to fill in. And they told me that I was just going to fill in for Jimmy for a couple of months while he was doing that. So um, in the interim, I went and auditioned for Brian May and got the gig. So then I ended up, uh, I did most of Alice's touring that summer. Then I left to go play with Brian and did the Brian May tour for the rest of the year. And then I came, ended up coming back. Allison, they called me back up because the drummer they had to fill in for me after I left. They only did a handful of shows, but Alice wasn't happy with, with that. So they asked me to come back. And then I ended up basically back in Alice's band and stayed with Alice up until the last tour I did with Alice was 2008. But from, I did a total of, I think, 13 tours with Alice or 13 years mixed and matched over time of playing drums for Alice. Yeah, I went to the House of Blues in Myrtle Beach to see Alice Cooper play. And I remember telling my friend, I was like, Eric Singer used to play with Alice Cooper. And we went in and you were playing. I was like, well, look at that. He's back. Yeah, well... 
That's the thing is I was, I, I was in and out. You know, I got to say, Alice is a great guy. And I, I love Alice. He's always been very cool. Was always very nice to me and very accommodating because he knew there's times where when I was, I went back to play with Kiss in 2001, but I still kept playing with Alice. And, um, and, and then in 2014, I'm sorry, sorry, 2004, Kiss did like that Rock the Nation tour. Um, so I ended up just not playing with Alice that year. And um, Tommy Corfetto's came in because he was playing with Ted Nugent opening for us the year before. And so everybody liked him. They said, let's get that guy. So Tommy ended up starting to play with him. Then Tommy got the Rob Zombie gig. So they called me to come back. So in 2005, I was back playing in the band again. And, um, and kiss really wasn't, we kiss didn't play that much in Oh five, Oh six, Oh seven kiss only did a handful of shows each one of those years. So I ended up just playing with Alice. And then 2008 kiss started touring, like full on again. And I actually did both tours that year, but I was so, be honest with you, I was so wiped out by the end of the year. I really, I remember that really wearing me out. I was like, I can't do this. It's too much. I got to just do one. And I knew kiss was going to stay busy and keep working. So, and Alice knew it too. And I was like, yeah, you know, he knew, he understood that it made sense for me to play with kiss because it was a more, you know, with kiss is more of a, of Alice is a solo artist. Let's just put it that way. And Kiss is, is a band. So um, Alice knew that, you know, hey, it's a better situation for Eric, more lucrative. And, you know, and it's a unique thing. He knew that Kiss in that situation, you know, the fact that I sing a lot, um, you know, I'm more integral to what Kiss does than what Alice does. Right on. Now, you know, it's been... 20 years since the release of Carnival Souls, which was kind of a weird release because, you know, it had been bootlegged and the band was was already back with, with Ace and Peter. How, how do you look back on that record 20 years after its release? Um, well, I got to tell you, uh, I'm going to have mixed feelings. I don't... I, I know we, when we worked on that record, we did a lot of demos. Well, I, I know we did a lot of demos with uh, Gene and Bruce Kulick and myself because Gene, um, a lot of times, would say, "Hey, let's go in the studio." Gene likes to work really more kind of old school way. He likes to just get in a rehearsal room or get into a. We'd go into a cheap demo studio and just go in there and blast ideas down and put it on tape. And sometimes Gene had this little cassette deck, and he would go home, and he knew how to do his own little editing that worked and it worked pretty seamless for, I mean, it was, mind you, it was a very primitive poor man's way of doing it, but it was at least a way for Gene to do something that, cause he's not savvy with technical stuff and pro tools or any of that type stuff. So this was a, a way for Gene to be able to at least work on material and ideas in on his own. But, you know, Gene was very uh, into like just working on all kinds of riffs and, and, and I know Bruce was very heavily involved. Well, you know, a lot of those riffs, on that record is is a lot of Bruce's riffs, um, right? And what and it's very and it's very indicative of the times. You know, it's not like we were trying to be Soundgarden or Alice in Chains. I know there's people that that uh, obviously we were influenced by that. And and I know some people get it's interesting how some people don't think that it's right or okay for a band to be influenced by what's going around with them at a given time. They think like, oh, well, you have your own sound. You should just do your own music. But the problem is, 
you can't make the same record over. In other words, Kiss can't make uh, you know Dress to Kill over and over every year after year or or Destroyer every year. You have to, you know, you get you make that record one time, and then you do whatever you do the next time you go in to record, and you can't help but be influenced by what you hear on the radio and what's going on around you. But I mean, it, it's. It not only happens songwriting wise, it happens even playing wise. Uh, you know, if you go to a concert and you see, for example, a drummer and he plays a certain way that you really like or identify with, you go home and you go, oh, I'm going to steal that lick that that guy did. I thought he did this thumb, that this particular thing really kind of cool. I'm going to find a way to incorporate that into what I do, but I'll do it in my own way. And that's usually the key is you try to take those influences and then spin it to where you make it sound like it's your version of it. And I think that's very, um, very um, common among many people. Some people don't listen to anything and just say, hey, I just play whatever I play and whatever comes out of me. And there, there's that mindset as well. But I think it, anyone that goes and sees shows and listens to any music on the radio that's popular at a given time, you can't help but be, be somewhat influenced by it because you know, you're hearing it every day pretty much. Right, definitely. And so, at that point, you're you're out of Kiss, or you're at least not not in the public eye with them for a good a good five years, it seems like, and then maybe four and a half. I'm not sure, but at some point in early 2001, I'm guessing you get the call that there's this tour, and Peter's not going to do it. I guess it's an Asia Australia tour. Were you surprised when they were suddenly like, we need you to go out with us and, and ace and, and come back into the band? Was that a surprising call or did you expect it? Um, yeah, I thought it was kind of, I was kind of surprised to be honest with you because all of a sudden I got a call. I was actually in Japan again at a fan expo. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. Anyways, um, my lawyer, I actually was, I don't know what made me check in with him. I don't know what the reason. Oh, no, I know what it was. I was just checking my answer machine, and he happened to have called and left me a message to call him because I was going from Japan over to um, Thailand. They had this special deal back at the time, uh, back at that. This was in 90, I'm sorry, 2001. Um, They had this deal that if you flew from mainland USA to Japan and back round trip, you could just fly connect over to Thailand for free. Um, you could just add that on as an extra trip. So one of the guys, you know, Keith LaRue, of course, Ian. Yeah. I was going to say, Keith told me this story. That was Keith. So Keith, Keith goes, Hey, Eric, we can go to Thailand for nothing. If, you know, as long as you bought a round trip ticket from us to Japan, you can piggyback on this free trip. We should go over there and just go on vacation. I'm like, okay, cool. So we just decided, well, it was free. You know, you just had to book your hotel, but the flight was nothing. So we said, yeah, let's do it. So we added on, like, I don't know, maybe about four or five days or something. And it was actually a very fun, cool trip. We saw some crazy stuff. Um, so we decided to just go. We did. We saw these crazy, it was like, I remember going down like these banana boats down through the jungle and we went to this like snake farm and this like weird place where they had these lions and cats and all bears and stuff. Like this, it was kind of a really primitive, I wouldn't call it a real zoo. It was like a real primitive form of a zoo. It's kind of just kind of, it was kind of surreal. Some of the stuff. It's so like, anyways, don't stop. Uh, don't stop the boat. Keep going. 
<laughs> the water where I remember was so dirty and these little kids would be all on the way when you're going down the river. These little kids be swimming in it, you know, just like you would play in your backyard as a little kid. I guess it was commonplace. That's what they knew. But the water was so dirty and these kids would be swimming in it. Um, but I guess maybe they got immune to the bacteria and stuff, uh, which I guess tends to happen. Anyways, uh, so right before we, 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 get, we were, it was literally the morning ready to go to the airport to leave Japan to go to Thailand and I got up. I said, well, I'm going to check my answer machine. And I had a message from my mother saying to call me right away. Uh, Kiss wants you to talk about wanting to come back and play with them. So I called and they said, yeah, they want you. I guess there was an issue with Peter and they want you to play it. And, and I told him I'm just on my way to Thailand. He said, well, just go and when you get, by the time you get back, I'll have everything sorted out. Because I remember asking him, what makeup do they want me to wear? Or what are they going to do about the makeup? He said, I don't know. They haven't decided. But I'm wow. sure everything will be worked out by get back. So in the beginning, mind you, this kind of, I think people, you know, the old saying, you make it up as you go along. Uh, I think because of the fact that Peter um, couldn't agree to terms with them, they basically, I guess, came to the resolution that, well, if you're not going to do it, then we're just going to ask Eric Singer to come back and play. And and that's what happened. So I don't think that they really knew how to deal with it regarding the makeup or anything. I don't think they ever, it, put it this way, they didn't think about it because it hadn't happened. So yeah. it was like making up to go along. And that, I remember them saying, well, they're not sure what they're going to do. They'll figure it out. And then I got home that week later, and I remember when I called my lawyer, he said, oh, they're just going to have you wear the cat makeup. And then that was it. And it was it was never a, like a, it was never a big deal. I mean, it was no no big deal was made of it, I should say. Obviously, some of the fans felt differently, but or, or even to this day feel differently. But to me, it was never, for me, it was never a big deal. Uh, I don't, I don't get so um, emotionally connected to any situation like that. I just can't do that. To me, it's like I, I play drums. It's about making music. And, you know, it's the way I look at it. Maybe I'm more black and white about it. And uh, But either way, they had me come into a studio like the next week and get, you know, with a costume people and get me fitted for the stuff. And, and then I remember we went to a photo session and uh, they put the makeup, you know, Paul and Tommy Thayer were there and showed me how to put the makeup on. And I did a photo session and I remember Gene showed up later and Gene's looking at me and it's like, yeah, it looks fine. Okay. You know, it's okay. And then that was it. And we did a photo session and then they sent that artwork of that photo of me to the promoter in Australia. Cause they told the promoter that Peter wasn't coming and Eric Singer was going to be replacing him and all that. And they actually went and changed all the posters but they, so they, my point is they absolutely did tell everybody they said it in interviews and, and they told the promoter and the promoter changed the thing, changed the, the uh, artwork and everything saying that Eric Singer's playing drums now. So for those that want to rewrite history or have revisionist point of view, that's what really happened. Right. Right. Cool. These are some great old stories. And I mean, I know we're going on an hour here, Eric. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I did want to at least touch upon some of the great stuff you have going on uh, in modern times. Now, can we talk a little bit about Ronnie Montrose? And I know you and, and Ricky Phillips and just a, a lineup of all stars have come together to complete Ronnie Montrose uh, final album, 10 by 10. Can you talk a little bit about 
Ronnie Montrose and, and this, uh, how this album came about? Well, I actually was playing with Ronnie in 2000 and like, I think like 2002, 2003, around that time frame. Maybe, was it even maybe a little old four? But I was playing some gigs with Ronnie. Um, and who, and I was a big fan of Montrose growing up. So for me, when I got asked to play with him, Chuck Wright from Quiet Riot was playing bass with him at the time. And Chuck said, Hey, Ronnie needs a drummer. You want to play with him? I was like, you know, that was like, that was an easy yes, because I was so influenced by that first album and such a big fan. So, um, I jumped at the opportunity because I just wanted to play those. I always wanted to be able to play those songs. Um, so then Chuck ended up, I think I'm trying to remember if Chuck left to go back to quiet riot, I think. So he, he recommended Ricky Phillips, who's in sticks and Ricky ended up joining the band. So then it was Ronnie, Ricky and myself. And, um, there was a couple different singers in the times that I did gigs with Ronnie. He had two different singers working with him. Um, I think Ronnie was always, um, looking for the right guy, um, vocally, because it was always a tough thing, I think. Um, and Ronnie's, if you look through his history, he always was changing directions musically. He was always exploring different people to work with and play with and all that. So I think that was just kind of who he is. But he seemed to like that lineup of Ricky and myself. So he said, hey, I want to go do some music and I want to record it. And I want it to be organic, like playing live in the studio, two-inch analog tape, like old school way, no click tracks. So we ended up recording a bunch of music. And we had a singer that Ronnie was working with at the time, but Ronnie, um, after we had had cut the basic tracks and Ronnie let the guy attempt to sing on the stuff, Ronnie wasn't happy with it. And he just said, you know, this isn't work. This isn't right. And then he just said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to do, I'm going to get, I think I'm going to just ask a bunch of different people to sing on it. So he came up with the idea and the title called 10 by 10. So the original concept was going to be a, a record of 10 songs with 10 different singers. Well, then Ronnie got ill and ended up passing away. The record just kind of sat on the back burner and Ricky decided that, you know, he really wanted to finish that record for Ronnie. He thought there was a lot of cool material on it. Some of the, a lot of the vocals were done. Ronnie had never done any of the solos though, but all the basic tracks were there. So Ricky actually took on that crazy project of all that work and sorting through everything and got an engineer to they eventually so 10, 10 by 10 instead of being 10 songs 10, years, 10, 10 singers 10 different guitar players on the 10 songs so the title never changed and the basic concept never changed except for that we ended up having guest lead guitarists as well um, and Ricky took on that big task of Finally, you know, finally finishing the project. I mean, that was really more of a labor of love, and and doing it to finish it as a tribute more to Ronnie. To be honest with you, it was never right. about anybody. Believe me, money in these kind of things. There's no money. This is really it, it's almost. I don't want to say a thankless job because the thanks you get is knowing that you got to do something that was creative and you did it for somebody's legacy and as a and so, somewhat as a tribute to them. So that's. To me, ultimately, that's what this was about. Gotcha. And some great, I mean, guest stars on that record. Eric Martin, Edgar Winter, Sammy Hagar, Tommy Shaw, Glenn Hughes. I mean, there's it's mind-boggling how many people are involved. Yeah. Mark Farner and uh, Davey Patterson, who sang in Gamma. There's one song that's uh, that 
it, the, the song that Davey Patterson sings, it sounds to me just like, a, it almost sounds like, like you're listening to a Gamma record. Um, and there's times where I was, whenever I was doing the, that material, I myself, from a personal point of view, I tried to channel a Montrose, you know, that Montrose Gamma era vibe, if you will, because Denny Carmasi was the drummer in those bands, and he was a major, major influence to me as a drummer growing up. I loved Denny Carmasi's drumming. So I tried to wear a little of that influence on my sleeve, if you will, because, you know, it's cool when you get to work with some of these people, like I mentioned earlier, that you've been influenced by. And when you get to work with them, it's kind of surreal, to be honest with you. Because I remember going to a concert or, you know, dropping the needle on those records as a kid, as a teenager, and then all of a sudden, or seeing them in concert, and all of a sudden you fast forward all these years, and all of a sudden you're on stage playing with the guy, and you're like, wow, this is kind of cool. So for me, I have to admit, I've been very, very blessed and very fortunate to get to work with so many people that I was really impacted by and influenced by. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you've had such a incredible career. So many just big names you've gotten to play with, like you said. And if you're cool with this to wind things up, I, I just wanted to get an update from you on, on KISS. There has been some, I guess I'd call them teases in the press. Gene has mentioned this new song, Your Wish Is My Command. Paul has been talking about if they did, an, if you guys do another record, it would need to be something different. Is there is there any definitive plans to start working on a new Kiss record? No, well, not that I've been told, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't <laughs> start. The process. I mean, honestly, with, with Kiss, anything I always say, never say never. As I've not only say, but based on my own experience, never say never when it comes to anything with Kiss, because you never know what they may or may not do and what may or may not happen or what the possibilities are. Um, I know we just did the kiss cruise, which was number seven, which was very cool. It was very, uh, it was a really, actually a really great one. 12 hours. That's just my computer telling me the time. Um, they, uh, you know, that, that cruise, they, they turned into like this kind of annual retreat. If you will, it's almost like people going on to a, uh, retreat up in the mountains to go and get purified or clarified, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like that's a, that's how the kiss become for a lot of people. A um, religious experience. Course, well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's funny because we always have different bands on the cruise, but I think Paul said something to me, uh, I think the last cruise or something. I think he, you know, you, you learn, every time you do something, you learn a little bit more about yourselves, you learn learn more about your fans and more about the situation. And, you know, we've done seven of these cruises. We're going to do the eighth one in 2018. Um, one thing we realize is that it's not that KISS fans don't like other bands or other music, but KISS fans usually tend to be very, very, um, very zealous. And sometimes they're very one band. In other words, they it's almost like a, a, a woman that marries her high school sweetheart and all she's never known is her husband and that's it. A lot of KISS fans, that's how they feel about KISS. They really don't care right. about other bands. Not they don't like other music, but when they come on a KISS cruise, they're there for KISS and KISS-themed stuff. So I think more and more we're realizing that it's cool to have all these other bands come on the cruise because we're fans of a lot of these bands as well, and we enjoy it. But ultimately, I think the fans want people that are connected to the band in some way and keep it more Kiss themed because after all, it's called Kiss Cruise. So if it was like a heavy metal cruise, you'd have, you know, 
many type metal bands and I could understand more diversity on those type themed cruises. But on a Kiss cruise, I guess it makes sense to have it just be about Kiss. And you had Bob and Bruce Kulick on this last one. That was a great show. Very good. Yeah. I, well, that was very obviously, cool. Mind you, I'm a little biased because I'm a big Todd Hearns fan. But I think, the you know, in my opinion, the reason that was so successful was because of uh, Todd singing. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't some of that material, it takes the right person to do that material and have it be, um, to do it justice. And a lot of that material, especially the 80s kiss, that stuff's really high key. Yeah, like Who Wants to Be Lonely? He did a great job on that. Oh, yeah. But, um, the one I thought was was good was um, what was the one? Turn on the night. Yep. I thought he did turn on the night. Great. I mean, look, I love a lot of. I, I know some fans of Kiss. You know, I, I my favorite era of Kiss is the first three records. But I do love a lot of the '80s pop stuff because I love pop songs. So I love Journey and Foreigner and B- Bad Company and Boston. All those type of bands. I love all those bands. So. For me, um, anytime somebody has good sing-along type melodies, even if it is somewhat a little poppy, I still dig it. You know, and right. to me, a lot of those Kiss songs, like the ones we named, they have that type of element to them. So I, I, I like them. But I thought Todd Kearns was the secret weapon. I know all the fans were glad to see Bob and Bruce playing together and playing that material. But ultimately, I think having Brent Fitz and Todd Kearns in the band, that's what made it really um solid Absolutely. and it made it come off yes a, a really good way so anybody you know, listening you can go to youtube and check it out great it's a great um concert yeah they did i thought it was really cool i went i watched it i mean i, I, I was i only well they only played one time unfortunately bruce had to, bruce could only stay on the boat for a couple of days he had a gig so he had to get off at the first port otherwise i'm sure that they would have see the usual the premise on the Kiss Cruise, every band plays three times. So, um, in, you know, including Kiss. Everybody plays three gigs in different venues, but everybody throughout the boat. Like, we play on the deck, and then we play two shows indoors. And everybody else does something similar, but they play in three different locales, usually. Um, and three different, three separate occasions. That's the basic format for anyone that plays on the on the Kiss Cruise. You play three times. Nice. Um but we couldn't do it this year with Bruce because of that. So um, maybe in the future, you know, they'll get Bruce to come back at another and do another one and where he can actually be more committed to be on the boat for the whole time and do, uh, you know, do the typical format of doing the three shows per, per artist, if you will. But I have no idea what the, I have no idea what the theme is or what, you know, the, the Kiss Cruise is kind of Paul Stanley's baby, if you will. Paul usually is the one that comes up with a lot of the ideas and the approach and the theme, if you will, of what we're going to do on a particular cruise. Um, and then when it comes to the set list the band does, then that's usually where we all get involved in, and contribute to that. Tommy and myself and, and Gene, we all get together and figure out what we're going to play. Nice. Yeah, it's great. You played the deep cuts. The Kiss fans really love that. Oh, well, I like it too. You know. <laughs> Like you the oath, you played the oath. That was great. And I, great. 
yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. Um, I just, I, I just think it's fun to play some different songs. I, I know a lot of people sometimes would suggest or wish that we would play some songs in a normal Kiss concert, and I agree to a certain point. But I also realized that if you play obscure songs in a Kiss show, it's almost like when you go see the Rolling Stones and they play all these hits and then they'll go, okay, we're going to play a song off our new album. And then everyone sits down and nobody reacts and nobody does anything. Um, and people almost act like they couldn't care less because they don't even know the songs. They just want to hear honky tonk woman, brown sugar, jumping Jack flash and all that stuff. Um, it, so it's very difficult for bands that have been around for a long time. And I'm not making excuses to tow some kind of dialogue that maybe everyone thinks that Gene and Paul always say, but I think they're right. Um, on the, they're absolutely right on this one. And, and this is a problem for a lot of bands. They'll go and uh, try to, they'll try to incorporate some new songs, but fans just, when a band doesn't get the reaction out of new material that they do out of old material, sometimes they start thinking, okay, people don't like it. I'm not going to play it. And they'll attempt it for a couple of shows. And then they usually end up taking it out the set. And it's, you see this happen quite a bit. Some bands will like Iron Maiden, I think maybe, maybe Metallica, I'm not sure, but I know Maiden will play a lot of new material and they'll just keep it in there and go, Hey, that's what we're doing. But they have some of, some of those bands, I think have a different type of hardcore audience as opposed to, a band maybe like the Stones or Kiss. Yeah. Well, even Maiden, they've gotten a lot of flack in the press for playing too many new songs. I've heard a lot of people complaining about that. But yeah, you're, you're totally right on There you go. And, it's, you know, it's really a can't, it's almost like you can't win situation. You're going to have a handful of people that are happy that you did play some obscure or different material, and then you're going to get a bunch of other people that say, I don't know these songs. Where are they playing these songs I never heard before? And the average fan is not a diehard um, when it comes to most bands. I'm talking about music in general. Um, like I went to see Lady Gaga a couple weeks ago, and I'm not familiar with all her songs. I couldn't tell you, honestly, the songs she played, I knew a lot of them, but I don't know what songs she played, if any of them were obscure or what. I have no idea. I just went to see her show and her presentation from the theatrical and production point of view, right. and she's a great singer. She's really, that girl could sing. Like she's the real deal. So I went to just see her because I think she's a real talent and I wanted to see her production of how she presents because I love big shows. I love a lot of, you know, theatrical type stuff, lights and pyro and stuff like that. I, I enjoy, I like bands that are performers that really put on a show as opposed to just stand there and play music, which is fine. Some artists, that's what they do. Like when you go see the Eagles, you're not going to see a show. You're going because you want to hear those songs and the Eagles have a, you know, an amazing catalog of material to play. But they basically, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but they just stand there and play. There's no show to see, if you will. Yeah. And I'm more the, you know, that's why I like Genesis, like early Genesis with Peter Gabriel, where he would be very theatrical and they had all these amazing lights and stuff. You know, same thing with Pink Floyd. Those bands, even though they had, it was more artsy, it, there was a performance and a spectacle to what they did mm -hmm. more than just coming out on stage and playing the songs. So that's my point. Gotcha. Well, Eric, we've been in, talking to you for an hour and 10 minutes. You have been so gracious with your time and we just want to thank you so much for sharing all these great old stories and giving us an update on kiss. And uh, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to everything you have coming up in the future. 
All right, guys. Thanks a lot. And uh, as always, we, you know, happy new year to everybody, to all our, all our fans. And uh, I know there'll be more, more new and good, exciting things for KISS coming up in 2018. I can't say exactly what yet, but I know there's some things in the, in the books and in the cooking in the books. Right. I mean, I, I should say <laughs> cooking in the kitchen um, <laughs> or on the books, I have to say for the future. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think kiss is like a shark. You just keep feeding and swimming, swimming and eating and surviving. You know, yeah. shark never sleeps. They swim and eat forever. And I think that that's, I, I got to tell you, I think that's a, I'll leave you with this thought. I think that that's not a bad way to live. I don't mean be a shark in a bad way, but I mean by always keep moving forward in life. Just keep swimming and, and keep going because if you stop, you die. Right on. Ian? Yes, sir. Don't forget to have a merry 62 miles. I mean, Christmas. All right. I hear you, my brother. Thank you very much for your time, man. Hey, no problem. No problem.
Creatures of the Night off of Kiss Alive 3. Yeah, good stuff. Big thanks to Ian McCurdy for lining up that interview, and a big thanks to Eric Singer for talking with us here on Talking Metal. That's going to do it, guys. I really appreciate your support. You know, I recently got let go from, from my job, so any any support you can give me through the Patreon page, you know, sign up to be a... Uh, contributor to the podcast would be great it's uh just search talking metal or mark striegel in patreon or you can send me a paypal donation i appreciate that or you can uh just give us a five-star review if you can't afford it go to itunes afford to make a donation go to itunes and use uh your username and you leave a five-star review for talking metal also use our amazon links you guys know how that works um yeah i appreciate your support and Happy New Year, guys. The best of everything to all of you in 2018. Okay, that'll do it.